Uh, good morning, friends. How's everyone doing this morning? Um, a little peek behind the curtain for how you get invited to speak to a sermon and the topic that you get given, get given if that's the appropriate phrase. Uh, Jeff messaged me several months ago and said, hey, I want you to speak on uh, Jesus and the Herod trope in scene. <laughs> so I said, okay, great. Um, I thought about it throughout like a couple months, just kind of intermittently. And then Dan called me up last week as I was driving back from Louisville in a rainstorm. I think he was concerned for my safety. He's like, have you thought much about what you want to talk about? And this will make sense why I'm telling you about this in a second. Um, I said, well, kind of, but I would love like, you know, as CV and the staff, as you guys have kind of talked about this, what are your thoughts on, on what you want this message to say? Because in church culture, that's kind of what you do, right? And what I love about CV is the, uh, I guess, the openness to the Spirit of God. And Dan said, you know, kind of just what you feel like. Like, we don't want to get in the way of what God may want to tell people and what God may be telling you and what you may have on your heart. And when you're preparing for a talk, I, I think that that's pretty freeing. And it's a, I think, healthy reminder for me who came from a culture of controlling the narrative or controlling the message to exist in a space where there's freedom to listen and freedom to lean in and really trust in one another uh, to tell each other about the messages of God or to speak the messages of God to one another. So I'm just a dude, as everyone knows, I'm not on staff. Um, I don't have thousands of degrees in Bible or anything like that. I'm just a person who is living in this life, who goes through great times and hard times, believes that there's something more beyond us. So I tell you that because sometimes when people have microphones and they get up on stage, there's a perception that they're other than or that they're more spiritual than, and no way is that true whatsoever. So I, I just kind of want to level the scene there. So, okay, all that's the pretext and the setup. Um, this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're talking about this really interesting story that takes place early in the book about the life of Jesus, and it's very much at the beginning of the birth of Jesus. So as a reminder, what's happened in the first passage or the first chapter of the book of Matthew is a really long genealogy of where Jesus came from. So it's a reminder from the author, this person that we're talking about came from the lineage of all of these people, which is a way in the scripture of saying this person is like the best of those people coming to fruition. It was a way of attaching Jesus to very significant people in history, people who were to carry the lineage of the Messiah forward. It was also a way of being subversive for the culture of the time and reminding the original authors or the, the original recipients of this story that this Jesus had scandal in his past. This Jesus had people who shouldn't be in the lineage of kings in his past. So this is where we are in the scene in the story. The author has kind of set this up. And then he leads us into this really interesting scene that takes place. So before we read that passage and before we talk about that, I want to talk about a few different things. 
So we're going to talk about four things today, if my ADD mind allows me to remember that we have four things to talk about. First thing I want to talk about is propaganda. After that, I want to talk about stage setting. Then we're going to talk about power and what power is and what power is not. And then lastly, we'll end on the gospel truth for me and for you and for all of our friends and our neighbors outside of this space. So first, propaganda. And when I say propaganda, maybe a different word that we could use would be gospel. In ancient Rome, there were these men who came to power. They were known as Caesars. When a new Caesar would break onto the stage, when he would control and command the kingdom, typically one of his first actions was to commission the authoring of these epic narratives that would be distributed about him throughout the empire. In early ancient Roman times, there, there's not TikTok, there's not social media, there are no interwebs. It's just word of mouth, it's stories, it's people saying things that they've experienced and heard and inviting other people into this story. So as a person in control of the most powerful empire in the history of the planet, it was very important that your subjects believed that you were something other than them. Otherwise, you would have war on your hands. You would have treason on your hands. So these Caesars would commission these epics. These epics would be filled with uh, shocking relative births of these Caesars. They would oftentimes be birthed in these profound ways, in these exuberant ways, these uh, huge, big unveiling ways of this person being born into this planet. The stories would be filled with all these acts of superhuman power and superhuman might. This person, when he was of a young age, did this mighty thing, and he also did this thing, and he did this thing. See how no other human man could do things like this. So obviously, this Caesar is more than a man. Caesars would be known as sons of gods. So in this epic narrative, the culmination of the narrative was this man who sits on the throne is a son of God's living among us. And he is here to lead us into this way of privilege and power. These epics were called Gospels. In the middle of this context, in the air of that environment, you have emerging out of a tiny little village where lived fishermen and tradesmen, this vagabond rabbi with no wealth to his name who begins traversing across the territory, across the Roman lands, speaking and teaching and maybe more adequately questioning Jesus had a way of teaching that was oftentimes open-ended. You have heard it said this, but I say to you, what about this? You believe that blessed are the powerful, but what if the weak are the blessed? You say blessed are the rich, but I say the weak 
are the blessed. The poor are the blessed. So in this context, you have this vagabond with no wealth to his name, whose movement, by the way, was funded by women, who was followed by castaways, erupting onto this scene. And there begins to trickle across the empire stories, acts of what this nobody has accomplished, healings, teachings, blind receiving sight, dead people coming to life. After this man's time on earth, after this Jesus' time on earth, decades after this, there are stories that are written about him. And there's lots of scholarly debate on when these stories were written. You could place it maybe 20 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. You could place it 40 or 50 years after Jesus' ascension to heaven. There's valid arguments on both sides because these things happened thousands of years ago. Um, but in the midst of, of that, these stories begin rising up. And they're stories that are known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels of Jesus. So what are Gospels? Are Gospels history lessons? Sort of. Are Gospels stories and things that people have heard and things that people are wanting to pass along? Sort of. Are they sermons? Sort of. Are they truth? Yes. Are they propaganda? Kind of. Because they exist in a space where a people are leaning into this question and asking, what if there's something different from what we see around us? So maybe if we understand the Gospels a little bit differently this morning, we can understand the story that we'll read together in a different sort of light. So maybe the Gospels are people's attempt, people who have lived through something extraordinary and are living through extraordinary times, maybe it's an attempt for them to decipher what has happened and what is happening. So let's take a step back and not think of the Gospels as biography and let's think about the Gospels as a microscope and something that we might be able to learn together. So, Gospels are propaganda. Starting off on a solid, strong foot this morning. So that brings us saying the stage. In this context, with all this happening in the air, we start in Matthew chapter 2 and we encounter this really fascinating story about this man named Jesus who was born and there's this really interesting thing that happens around his birth. And I want to read this whole passage to you, um, and then we'll make a few points about it. If I can find my Bible app. There we go. Okay, so Matthew chapter 2, very beginning of the chapter. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. King Herod, a king in Rome, 
deeply disturbed by this birth of a baby boy in a tiny little village on the outskirts of town. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they'd seen the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for this child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for his children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. What? a story. So here's this king, this powerful man in a position of privilege who is fearful of this baby boy who's born on the outskirts of town. Who is Herod? Let's take a step back and understand where Herod's at in this story and maybe more importantly what Herod represents. So Herod is a bit of an interesting thing that you read throughout scriptures. There are actually four different Herods that exist in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this Herod is the first Herod. And Herod is uh, a, a great king who comes to power years before Jesus is born. He reigns for about 40 years. I was telling Rachel this morning, it's interesting when history and Bible history kind of collide because for some reason in your mind, you just think of the two things as different, which is not actually right. But Herod, at one point early in his career, had a, um, a collaboration with Mark Antony, also had a rouge with Cleopatra. So this is a dude that hung out in some circles. And there was a time in his life where he was fleeing. He thought maybe his, his uh, land was going to get overtaken. Mark Antony comes to his aid. 
rescues him, restores him to power. He makes kind of a backroom deal as all part of this. He's given a new land and a new territory. And so this man, Herod, begins to do some pretty impressive things. He anchors down and he starts building a city. They've excavated uh, an arena in his city that I think like 300,000 seats, if I remember right. So this is a big arena that he's built. Herod rebuilds a temple. Herod starts having all these lavish celebrations, and he's typically regarded as a pretty good dude until he gets a little bit older and older and older. As he's getting older, he decides that he wants to celebrate the fact that he has this land and that he's been saved from something and that he's kind of enjoying the best things of life. So he builds a mountain in the middle of the city and constructs a fortress in the mountain called uh, Herodia, I think is how you say it. It's just Herod Odia, um, Herodia. And this is what that looks like. What's interesting about this is prior to this land being built, this mountain did not exist. So somehow, nobody really knows how, Herod commissioned all this land to be brought together to build up this mountain, to build up this pinnacle, to build up this city as a way of saying, this is what I have attained. It's also a way of elevating himself above. Herod, after all, was known as a son of God. And so here in this context, we have this king named Herod who begins to get a little bit paranoid. He begins hearing whispers of rebellion. He begins distrusting his advisors. He begins believing that everyone around him, even the closest people around him, want him to be destroyed and want him to go away. He ends up murdering his wife, murdering his children, murdering some of his relatives, and then Jesus breaks onto the scene. And the reason why I think this is really interesting to talk about is because this is a story that feels all too familiar. A story of a person in power who wields their power to protect their power, who wields their power to build more and more power, whose objective in life is to become more and more and more and more and more powerful. So in many ways, this is a story that happened thousands of years ago and is a story that continues to happen every year since that time. I think that we can all look around and see similar stories in our midst. We can look around and see how regimes, systems, people who have certain ounces of power and certain realms of power seek not what's in the interest of others, but what's more in the interest of themselves. And so this gospel of Jesus, this propaganda of Jesus, is a call to action. It's a call to action that asks us, what is it that we should do with power? What is power at its 
fundamental definition. In this story, you have Herod, who is a visceral, visual representation of power and might. And you have Jesus, newborn, in the words of Talladega Nights, tiny little infant, baby Jesus, eight pounds, five ounces, who is the visceral image of weakness. And this story is asking the reader to lean in and say, how is this weakness overcoming this powerful regime and this empire? This is the thread that weaves itself through the rest of the story of the book of Matthew. This Jesus who invites us to ask, in this time, how can I lay down whatever power and whatever might I have in order to lift up those who are downtrodden, those who are weak? So a question for you this morning, what is our palace? What are our palaces? What are the things that we have in our lives that we are afraid of losing? What holds us back? What is it that we seek to protect? And maybe a more important question, what would it look like if we weren't afraid of losing that, if instead of being afraid of losing that, we sought to freely give that away or freely invite others into what we're experiencing. We live in a time that is greatly divided, filled with fear, filled with anger, filled with hatred, filled with righteous indignation. This is a moment, it feels like, in our society where we are questioning the systems of power that we have always accepted. And it feels like what's happening now is the curtains are being pulled back to expose the weakness of the people in those powerful situations. So it's an opportunity, I believe, for the church who at its best is a visceral visual image of laying power down and inviting all people to the table and embracing our brothers and sisters from all walks of life to really live out the mission of Jesus. Sometimes at our worst, we can be Herod. Churches have often done terribly horrific things in the name of protecting their positions, protecting power. Our history books are written about it. So this morning, there's no like clean summary of the message because we're kind of in the middle of this story in Matthew chapter 2. We're just kind of getting a peek that something's amiss, something different is happening. What we see is if we start to, to kind of just park right here in this story, we see at its root that this Jesus, the Son of God in this gospel, 
is going to be different than all the other sons of God and all the other Gospels that have been written. One last really interesting kind of nice little punch here. Herod was known as the king of the Jews. It was a moniker that was handed down to him from the Caesar in uh, the headquarters of Rome who saw the favor and saw the leadership and the power that he had over the Jewish people. And he was affectionately referred to and handed the nickname, the King of the Jews. When Jesus is crucified, he's mocked and represented. Here, Jewish people, is your king. Here is your king of Jews. We have these two scenes in our minds. This palace of Herod versus this Jesus on a cross. What a powerful metaphor that this is for us. And what a challenging call to action that this is for us. As a way of making it real, and then we're going to um, take communion and invite the band up and all those good things. What is something that you can do this week? What is something that you can do this month that takes your position, your privilege, whatever you have in your life, and gives that away for someone else or uses that, maybe a better way of saying it, uses that for the advantage of someone else rather than the advantage of yourself. That can look like all kinds of different things from big and small. So I invite you this morning to walk in this, this way of Jesus that consistently asks us to lay down ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves, that reminds us that real power is not in force or violence or coercion, but real power is in love and embracing friends and enemies. Because that's when the kingdom of God breaks through the surfaces of the falling apart world around us. Um, I want to invite the, the band up to come and uh, play, and we're going to take communion. I think, do I do communion? How does this work? Okay. Um, never remember. ADD. So communion is this, is this really uh, beautiful thing, and it, it originates from uh, this scene that we have in the Gospels of Jesus on the night before he's betrayed in the garden, right before he'll be taken and thrown into this mock court and crucified in this really violent way. We have this poignant scene. Jesus, who knows what's coming, sits down for dinner with his friends and his followers. And during the course of this conversation, during the course of this dinner, Jesus raises the bread that they're eating and says some really interesting things. He says, friends, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And similarly, he raises the cup as they're drinking the wine, and he says, take and drink, for this is my blood spilled out for you. And these individuals at the table have no idea what he's talking about. What a weird thing to be at dinner and someone says, you know, this is my blood that you're drinking. Probably not a great thing. Uh, but what we know is it's a way of Jesus forecasting what's about to happen, but also a way of inviting us into a really sacred moment. And every Sunday, every occasion from there on since, Christians across the world in all places, from all backgrounds, 
gather together at the same table and we eat and we drink as a way of celebrating a God who laid down his life, a God who walked among us so that we could know him and be in his presence. So friends, may you be blessed today. May you be blessed this week. Please, as we're singing, come forward uh, to take communion. We love you.